You are tuned in to Faith City Outreach with Marina Maria, the founder of Global Gospel Worship Radio. Marina interviews local pastors and global leaders, sharing their testimonies and the work they're doing for the Lord. In Matthew 6.33, Jesus reminds us, Seek first God's kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. We hope this program will encourage you to do just that. Now here's your host, Marina Maria. Welcome to Faith City Outreach. This is Marina Maria with today's special guest, Matthew Friedman, who is a leading internationally renowned global expert on modern slavery and human trafficking. He's also an award-winning public speaker, author, filmmaker, and philanthropist. Matthew regularly advises heads of governments and intelligence agencies. As the founder and CEO of the Mekong Club, Matthew is considered the leading catalyst of the anti-slavery movement in Asia's business sector by captains of industry. In 2017, Matthew received the prestigious Asia Communicator of the Year Gold Award for giving more than 1,100 presentations to 150,000 people, including government leaders, and the Vatican on the topic of modern slavery within a five-year period in different countries. Thank you so much, Matthew, for returning to Faith City Outreach to share how the Lord is using you internationally as a global expert on modern slavery and human trafficking. Thank you for the opportunity to come back. Matthew, we were talking about you sharing the template for people to be aware more aware on how to identify traffickers on a daily basis. Can you please share about that? Yeah, I think what's needed is for people to have a general understanding of what is human trafficking, how does it work, where is it found, and then to basically apply that to their life. If they're kind of out in the real world and they see something that seems suspicious or unusual or uncomfortable when you see kind of a a person with somebody else and you mm-hmm. the radar goes out the, the question is well what do you do in that situation do you do you, do you make a call do you do you not make mm-hmm. a call i often have people come to me years later who saw something that didn't seem right didn't make the call and they're still thinking about it years later so it's really important if mm-hmm. somebody kind of um, comes into your your realm, whether it's a supermarket or an airport or a train station or a bus station or just within the park, if you see something that just doesn't seem right, it's really important to act and to see whether you can get the authorities to at least understand that uh, something unusual is happening. What are those signs that something is unusual? For example, many people go to a grocery store. What are some signs of identifying someone who's the victim or somebody who is actually the trafficker? Well, many of us who are parents know what it's like to be with a child. Now, you can see that there's strife between parents and, uh, and their children, teenagers, and so forth, but this is different. You can see kind of a, a completely uncomfortable behavior of a young person with an adult it just doesn't look like they have the kind of communication that would go along with a parent and a child. Uh, in fact, there's maybe no communication at all. There may be nervous there, may, may be uncomfortableness. Now, the reason why that person might be with somebody else uh, is that they have to kind of go off to a store to get something. 
Um, but usually um, kind of a, a trafficker in the victim wouldn't be outside in, in this type of situation, but there are times when it just has to happen. As a result of that, you just see this dynamic that that just doesn't feel right. And, and as a result of that, I, it's, it's really, and this could be nervousness, it could be a person not making eye contact with anyone. If you approach them, they look to the other person to answer their question. There appears to be fear. The person who's minding the person seems to have an explanation for everything. All of these things are telltale signs that perhaps something unusual and inappropriate could be happening. Do you have a bodyguard who travels with you or security that travels with you as you serve the Lord in this challenging uh, ministry? I have never had a bodyguard, but uh, when I was in Nepal, a couple of my colleagues were actually killed as a result of the work that they did related to human trafficking. I myself would get phone calls where people would say, we're going to throw acid on your wife and kids. Uh, that was a that was a point at which uh, I felt like I needed to make a change because as you get closer and closer to these criminals mm -hmm. and they get more and more kind of desperate to ensure that you don't do what you need to do. And so went from Nepal to Bangladesh and have been in many, many uh, kind of compromising and uncompromising scenarios where I felt like uh, there was danger. Um, but, uh, you know, the Lord has always protected me. He's always been there for me. And I've always felt like um, uh, if, if something was going to happen, it was going to happen. But I didn't think it, I had to worry about it because I, I had this sense of, of protection that went around along with Jesus being, you know, in my camp, helping out and, 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 and kind of watching over me. I, I felt that for a long time now. Amen. Now, when a trafficker is arrested, how long does he serve in prison? Well, I mean, that's part of the problem. And uh, when it comes to pimping young people in the United States, it used to be a misdemeanor, which means that he could get a fine of a couple hundred dollars or five hundred dollars. What's happening now is the laws are being changed so that uh, anyone under the age of 18 who's in prostitution and is being kind of lured into it or held into this. Uh, by a pimp or a madam or somebody else would be identified as a trafficker. And generally trafficking uh, convictions can be much higher. It could be years or even more than that. Uh, and the fines could be uh, very high as well. So what is needed is for there to be uh, a, a, the crime commensurate with uh, the punishment. You know, I mean, you know, if if you're dealing with basically commercially raping a young person, uh, holding her in place and uh, benefiting from that, then I think the, the punishment needs to be uh, quite severe. So we're seeing changes taking place where the laws are catching up to this. And part of the reason why the laws weren't like this before is in some cases, there's been this weird relationship between law enforcement and prostitution, where maybe they do raids and rescues and periodically, but they just kind of see this as a, um, you know, vice crime and it's harmless and it's not really a big deal, but it is because mm -hmm. despite the fact that a lot of women and girls say that they want to be in prostitution, I don't know of any girl that when she was 15 year old said, when I grow up, I want to be a prostitute. There's always, mm -hmm. uh, you know, circumstances. There's always a backstory. Mm -hmm. There's always a vulnerability. And if you develop a sense of trust with these girls and women, then you eventually get to a point where they say, yes, this is what happened to me. And this is how I got into it. This, and their self-esteem is just so low. Mm -hmm. And it's just 
as a result of that, they feel like, well, you know, I'm dirt to begin with. Why shouldn't I just do this? You know, I'm a terrible human being, et cetera, et cetera. And that leads to the psychology of allowing that vulnerability to take place. I know you advise governments and also intelligence agencies. Do they seek your advice? Uh, they do, actually. Um, you know, much of the work that I do now is related to working with the private sector to address this issue. Now, people would ask, well, why would the private sector be involved? Well, the banks are involved because $150 billion is generated for modern slavery. If any of that money gets into a legitimate bank, it's money laundering and they get fined. The manufacturers have sweatshops that could be a problem. And if they don't look into this and newspapers find out about this, it can be a great reputational risk. And when it comes to the hospitality sector, you know, a lot of women in, who are forced into prostitution are forced to go to motels and hotels. And so they have to be concerned about it. So we work with governments and we work with corporations and we help them to understand the vulnerability that exists. And then we help them to ensure that it doesn't affect their business. And by doing this, we both protect the business and we protect victims as well. So looking back in the past years, um, well, I should ask you, have you been doing this, advising them for many years or is it fairly new? 32 years. And I've advised over 42 countries, um, you know, all the way up to uh, kind of in the United States, the senator level, uh, federal uh, level. Uh, In Canada, it would be federal uh, level for parliamentarians and senators and all over the world, all the way up to minister level. So um, I was with the United Nations for six years and we ran the one of the largest counter trafficking programs in the world in China, Laos, Vietnam, Cambodia, Thailand, Myanmar. And in those countries, we were meeting at the highest level of the governments. And so at that level, there's a lot of acceptance of the fact that things need to be changed. Mm -hmm. And even if laws are changed which is a positive thing. The problem is it doesn't necessarily translate down to the operationalization at the law enforcement level. So much of what you have to do is to train, 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 and get in front of as many people as you can so that they understand what the laws say and what they need to do under the laws. And I do a lot of work with governments related to that. And so how has that been going? Have they easily accepted your advice um, it depends upon the government. Every every government is a little bit different. Uh, you know, governments almost have personalities. Uh, and so some governments will uh, agree to do anything and everything, but they don't operationalize it. Other governments say that we're not going to agree to anything unless we actually can put something in place. And then once they do that, then you begin to see some changes. So um, if you look at the 209 countries around and territories around the world that have governments the difficulty, again, with, uh, you know, laws and uh, operational plans and so forth comes back to that number of 0.2% of the victims helped. Uh, in the other session that I talked about, out of the 50 million people in modern slavery, only 0.2% of them were rescued each year. And a lot of it has to do with the amount of money that's generated to, from the criminals and the number of people who do this. Uh, full time, which is about 20,000 people. We are outmanned and outgunned. And we really need for the general public in the world to basically understand the relevance of this and to step up and be part of the solution. We didn't talk about the trafficker. We talked about the victim. But how about the trafficker? Who, what kind of background does the trafficker have? Or does he 
come or maybe she come from different walks of life? I'll give you two examples. A couple of years ago, this uh, Vietnamese person contacted me in Hanoi and said, can I meet with you? And I said, uh, yeah, I, a lot of people want to hear about human trafficking, and what the United Nations do. So I agreed to meet this this person. He was a highly educated, charismatic, funny guy. And I, for an hour, I talked about what I did with the uh, United Nations. And then I turned to him and I said, well, what's your story? He said, oh, I'm a human trafficker. So, excuse me? He said, yeah, I'm a human. I, all the things you said, I do that. I, I always wanted to have a conversation with somebody like you who was on the other side. So thank you very much for what you said. So I had two choices. I could either get really huffy and leave or sit there and continue talking to him. I continued talking to him for about another 90 minutes. Told me everything about his business. He handed me a business card. He says, go out, try to get me. You'll never get me. I'm so insulated. I'm so, you know, uh, covered by, you know, all of the bribes and everything else. Uh, go ahead, try he was a narcissist and he was he was very much, you know, feeling like, you know, he could pretty much do anything he wanted to. This entitlement was was just very much part of who he was. So that's one extreme. Another extreme is a lot of the criminals end up being victims themselves. So you have a 12 year old, 13 year old girl who's trafficked into a brothel and she hates it and she wants to get out. But eventually her parents find out what's happening to her in, in Asia and they won't accept her back. Nobody wants her back. And so she just accepts that life and moves from being a prostitute to a matter. So when she's, uh, you know, a victim, everybody's heart goes out to her. But then when she becomes the madam, you, everyone wants to throw her in jail and throw away the key. You know, there's these uh, these circumstances that kind of lead to criminals being criminals. You know, another example is uh, there are kids that are born in brothels and they often spend their first five years pretty much drugged under the bed because you can't have a kid running around in the brothel. And so they live this terrible life. And as a result of that, they have no choices. And then they end up being the criminals. So, you know, as Christians, we have to kind of look at both sides of the equation and realize that we need to address the needs of not only the victims, but the criminals as well. And we've done a lot of ministering to to the criminals to help them to to uh, leave the life and to do something respectful and different from human trafficking it can be done, not for all of them, but it can be done for many of them. The victim, we know that they go through being raped daily by numerous men, and we know that their health is going to be impacted drastically. What is their lifespan and also well, their health? I mean, how yeah. do they maintain having just a good health on a daily basis? Well, they don't, actually. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a very relevant question. When I was doing public health work, um, I would go into the shelters and there would be probably a hundred rescued girls from the brothels. They were all somewhere between the ages of 11 and 15. And I uh, basically had contact with them over a couple of year period, 10 years after, or actually five years after they returned back, they're all dead. They die of AIDS because the drugs that are available aren't there. Or they kill themselves, you know, many of them, because what happens when they return back to Nepal, their parent, their family doesn't want them, even though they had nothing to do with their enslavement, nothing to do with their trafficking. Uh, you know, they just attribute, well, you must have done something wrong in a bad past life that put you in this situation. So, in fact, you did bring this on yourself. Another thing is all kinds of 
communicable diseases. When you have, uh, when mm-hmm. 10 men are using you a day and you're a child, you're going to have a lot of damage to your body in many ways. And so, you know, from the health perspective, it's just, uh, you know, it's just a terrible situation, but you have to include mental health in this as well. Mm-hmm. Many of these girls just never recover. You know, they just, it's such a traumatic thing to have lost control of your life and have all these men climbing on you over and over again and seeing no exit to this and recognizing that if you kill yourself, then maybe your family will be killed because that's the threat they're often given. It's just a horrific, horrific scenario. And once they are, re- once they do recover, I don't want to say what it looks like, but how long does that take? You know, it. I've seen it be uh, I've seen people who leave the brothels who have had so much other trauma in their life when they get out they're like okay well I'm just going to move on with my life that's one extreme the other is a person who's catatonic they they just are so broken you're never going to be able to kind of address their needs and a lot of people somewhere in between I mean what these people need is um, trust love compassion uh, patience and you really just have to help them to understand it wasn't their fault. They didn't bring this on themselves and that God loves them. And, you know, they're forgiven and they have to they have to kind of forgive themselves, you know, because they they take on this burden of feeling mm-hmm. like, well, it's my fault. I somehow did this. It's not. And so prayer is extremely important as well. I've seen amazing transition with where people have prayed over who have gone through you know this uh this situation it's almost a deliverance the tears just just don't stop and it's just a a purging of of all of that uh pent-up negativeness that has uh been as a result of the scenario that they were forced to experience you mentioned that some don't recover now what if somebody did witness to them and they did uh dedicate their lives to the Lord? Well, you know, I mean, you're talking about in Asia where I live and work, many different religions, and many of the religions have almost a karmic type situation. If you did this, uh, basically, you can't be forgiven because uh, you, you did these terrible things. That's why Christian faith and prayer is such an important part of the recovery process because it immediately basically uh, allows for the forgiveness to take place. That forgiveness, I I once had uh, kind of a Christian um, worship group go to Nepal and they just wanted to visit one of the shelters and all of the girls were Hindus and Buddhists. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, they, um, they started to, to sing worship songs and and the girls started to cry. And then, Mm -hmm. uh, the group said, can we pray over you? And they started praying over there. And and then just the tears that the Holy Spirit involvement in this, the, the opening up of something, it, it resulted in, in some people uh, you know, finding their, their faith and following Jesus it's simply as a result of that experience. Uh, you know, it's, it's a very, very, very powerful thing when, when you, when you pray over people um, uh, in that way. Amen. Definitely. We need to pray for, for them and worldwide. Mm -hmm. When you do your presentations, do you also share about the Lord? Because I know you go to so many countries and so many cities. Are you given the opportunity or do you boldly share your faith? I do now and then, but not always. If I'm in a corporate mm-hmm. situation, I'm not I'm not able to do that type of thing. But mm-hmm. I mean, um, 
if I'm in front of a church, you're, you're going to hear all kinds of uh, kind of testimonies and, and experiences and my um, kind of relationship with Jesus Christ will come out in that type of a situation. But, you know, I had something interesting happen. And actually, this has happened a couple of times to me when uh, I'm about to do a webinar, just like we started with prayer before we did this. Um, I'll, I'll pray out loud. And I sometimes have the the... Um, the mute is off. I mean, yeah, so that they can hear me. And so I'm in a corporate event. Uh, I'm about to present. They're introducing <laughs> me and I'm praying to, you know, out loud. And then um, somebody will mute me. And then I realize, OK, well, they heard everything that I said. But, you know, I always feel good about that. You know, I didn't intentionally do it, but there's nothing wrong with that. And some people have come back and said, I, I, I'm really pleased to hear that you pray before this, because we recognize that you really want to get every one of those words to come out and to reach people and reach their heart. What we're dealing with here is just so extreme that, you know, you, you can't hold back. It has to be about uh, kind of sharing, you know, to the extent that it really does reach a person's uh, spiritual side. Amen. I know that the Lord made that happen, and I thank him for making that happen. I know the Lord has given you so many opportunities to give presentations internationally. Have your past presentations been the same today or are they different? They are different. Like in the early days, you know, 20 years ago, I was really going into uh, details about the pain and suffering that the victims would go into. 45 minutes, I would just talk about the horror of the situation. But what I created is a room of zombies. They were the, the audience was so traumatized, but I was saying, so I went from 45 minutes to 30 minutes. That was still too long down to 15 minutes. That was too long. So I usually start about eight and a half minutes that I get into the fairly graphic stuff. Then I talk about what you need to know related to human trafficking, what people can do to help and how they do it. And then I end up with something hopeful. You know, mm -hmm. you have to give people a sense of hope when we're talking about 0.2% of the victims uh, being rescued. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you, if you leave that, then people say, well, why bother? You know, I mean, it just, if you're not having any impact, why are we even doing anything associated with this? So it's really important to kind of change the presentation to allow for people to feel like that at the end of the day, we will eventually get to a point where we can have a significant impact of addressing this. And I, and I do believe in my heart of hearts that that will happen. It's just going to take more time than, than we had anticipated, but that's going to be the outcome because I, I just can't believe that God would want anything else. This is Marina Maria from Faith City Outreach with today's special guest, Matthew Friedman, who is a leading internationally renowned global expert on modern slavery and human trafficking. We are talking about how the Lord is using him internationally as a global expert on modern slavery and human trafficking and what people can do to prevent it and from increasing in our world. Matthew, I was wondering, what is the Lord putting in your heart right now in your time with him alone or during your Bible study? Um, get in front of as many people as you can. You know, my wife, Sylvia, and I, uh, God put this on our heart. Um, it's 53 days. It's over my vacation. Uh, I've done in 43 days uh, over 80 presentations to 11,000 people now. And, uh, you know, it really is just uh, this sense of kind of feeling like 
you never know who you're going to get in front of. You never know if that person's going to be the individual who's the, the next Matt Friedman who um, just feels so compelled to do something that they can't turn it off, which is kind of the way I feel about this. Um, I've come in contact with literally thousands of victims, uh, seeing the pain and the suffering, haven't been always able to turn it off, but I recognize that this is just something that just has to be addressed. And so um, I, I feel like uh, my mission now is to find those people who self-identify as wanting to address human trafficking. I often say that we don't pick our causes, our causes pick us. Mm -hmm. There are many things that I could have chosen to address, but I kept coming back to human trafficking. For other people, it's maybe global warming or animal abuse or bullying or whatever. This is my thing. If I get in front of 100 people, five of them will have the same. They'll come up to me. I'll engage with them, give them the tools and the means and the information and perhaps the motivation to go and take on this particular issue themselves, whether they're in a church or, you know, in a business or within their own community or within their family, and then to have them be the ambassadors that move this forward. And that's kind of what I feel like God has uh, for us to do is to find those people and to engage with them. That's great that your wife is helping you in this challenging ministry. Do you have children too that are supporting what you do? Well, my sons, I have two sons and they, um, we used to do study tours with them where my oldest would get up on stage and um, dad and son would kind of present together. My other son would be kind of the, the manager of us to make sure that we got to where we needed to be. And it was just such a blessing to, to be kind of presenting uh, with my 16 year old son. He's now he just graduated from medical school and he's a mm -hmm. emergency room doctor. So his service emphasis is still there, but, but it was, it was, it was just an amazing experience to be traveling with my, with my kids in these mm -hmm. locations to, you know, basically get this information out to people. Matthew, please give some examples on how people from all walks of life can help spread the word against modern day slavery and human trafficking. Well, I think it's more than just spreading the word. It's uh, one of the things is to learn about this and then to to spread this through talking to people, talking to your kids, getting your church to have a discussion on this, uh, posting on your social networking articles and your opinions and so forth. Another thing is to, you know, we didn't talk much about uh, forced labor, but there's a lot of products that we buy around the world that could be tainted by modern slavery. Uh, before like you it could be clothes, it could be electronics, uh, wow. it, branded types of things. What you can do basically is to kind of go online and see whether the companies you're buying from have some type of a policy related to modern slavery. If they do, send them an email and say, that's great. I, you know, I congratulate. If they don't say, I like your products, I wish you had something. Another thing you can do is volunteer. There's a lot of voluntary opportunities at churches, at non-government organizations. In fact, my youngest volunteer was nine years old. This girl saw me in a documentary, approached me and said, Mr. Friedman, I want to help. I said, you're nine years old. She said, so what? I said, you're nine years old. Wow. She said, nine-year-olds are the new 16-year-olds. Give me a chance. I said, what is it that you feel like you can do? She said, I can find anything on the internet. So I had some things that I had some second year Ivy League law students couldn't find, gave it to her. And two days later, you know, she found everything I needed because that was her God-given gift. Mm -hmm. If we apply, whether you're a public speaker or a writer or you do poetry or dance or sell t-shirts, it doesn't matter. 
apply that God-given gift to volunteerism. And it's a win-win. But lastly, is raising money. I mean, you know, post-COVID, a lot of the resources to fight this have been diverted to other things. Mm-hmm. About 25% of the organizations that I work with in Asia related to this topic aren't there anymore. They, they didn't survive the pandemic. And so at a time when the numbers are going up, giving a donation to the right organization really does make a difference. And all you have to do is to go look in your community, put uh, human trafficking in the community or the, the state or wherever, and a lot of an NGO, and then you'll see lots of organizations will pop up and you can just contact them and see what it is that you can do to help. One last question, and we only have a minute left. What would you tell people who negatively say or ask you, why waste your time on this issue of human trafficking and modern slavery when um, it has always existed and it will continue to exist? There's 4.8 million women and girls in forced prostitution. Each day they're commercially raped anywhere from twice to 25 times, depending upon where they are. Uh, Can we as a world turn our backs on that? Can we allow this to happen? Can this be something that we can say, well, just because it's existed that we should allow it to exist? I don't think so. I think there's a moral imperative that we have Mm -hmm. to address this issue. What would our world look like if we, like in 10 years, if we care to stop modern day slavery and human trafficking? You would be see 50 million people around the world uh, who were with their families, with their faith, uh, working, uh, feeling satisfied with life. Uh, It would be uh, uh, an opportunity for one in a thousand people to to live the same life that we have of freedom and opportunity and so forth. That's what a world without slavery would be. Thank you so much, Matthew, for being on Faith City Outreach to share everything that the Lord is doing in your life and in your ministry. I want to read the scripture over you that the Lord put in my heart to share with you. I decree and declare the scripture, Psalm 121 and chapter 5, verse 8. And that is, the Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life and your wife's life and your family's life. Your coming and going, both now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you so much. You've been listening to Global Gospel Worship Radio with Marina Maria. We'd like to thank our financial sponsors for supporting this internet global radio ministry. Carbajal & Associates Health Insurance Brokers, PLC. Scripture Picture and AZ Ministry Network. We'd also like to thank our prayer partners, including Venture Church, The Spheres of Influence, The Center for Peace and Reconciliation, Repentance Day, and now... The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Thanks for listening.